Welcome to Betty and the Sky with Suitcase. I'm Betty, flight attendant Betty, and this episode is called Top Guns and Blonde Moments. I had collected some fighter pilot stories from pilots, and I didn't think I wanted to do a whole episode of nothing but Top Gun stories, so I was trying to think of what I thought was the opposite of being a Top Gun, and I came up with Blonde Moments. So this episode is going to go... Top Gun Blonde Moment, Top Gun Blonde Moment. And at the end of the episode, I will tell one of my, I could have quite a few, (laughs) blonde moments where I jumped off a moving train in Morocco. Not a good idea. Let's start right off with a blonde moment. Uh, A recent blonde moment. uh, Well, recently we've just switched wines, and we have this wonderful wine in first class called Ribbit, Ribbit Red, which is a Merlot Cabernet. And I walked into the galley, and the flight attendant was going, my goodness, she says, I can't open this. This cork is so dry. And I looked at her, and I said, she had the corkscrew in the top. And I told her, that's a screw top, so it's made out of metal. No wonder you can't get the corkscrew through it. Uh, I guess I could say it's my first solo stall, or how I almost killed myself before I ever got started. So... This is one of my very first, maybe my second, solo flight. And I'm out there and I'm in 2,000, 3,000 feet and I'm puttering around. I say, okay, I'm going to try one of you. And I've never been a big fan of stalling. Because, I think most people would be. No, nah, it, it's just, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing to do. So, so I said, well, I better try one of these pylon stalls. Now, as I look back on it now, I remember that the proper procedure was you take it, you, you uh, put it in on, on a certain power setting, and then you roll. It was to simulate coming around for landing and making a turn towards the runway and and stalling in that position and then recovering. Well, I did exactly that. I set my par, and I rolled my wings over to about a 30-degree bank turn, and the idea was you start pulling back, simulating like you're trying to come around to the runway, and what happens is you pull too hard and you stall the airplane. Well, what happened is I did all of that and I pulled on the yoke of the airplane and I pulled and I pulled and I pulled and I pulled and not realizing what's going on, my, my bank angle kept increasing and finally the aircraft did stall. However, when it did, it flipped on its back. Oh my God. Now, here I am, about a whopping 10 hours of flying time under my belt. I'm a young, wet-nosed, punk-ass kid, and I'm upside down in an airplane, and I don't know how in the hell I got there. So, all I remember is looking up at that point, which was down, to see the ground, and I had one hand on the control wheel, and I had my other hand on the throttle, and the thought that kept going through my mind was, do I want power? Yes. So I pushed my full power, and I said, no, 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 no. And I kept pulling it out. And then I kept pushing it back in. And then I kept pulling it out. 
And I did that about three times. And You're still upside down? I'm still upside down at this point. Well, or uh, what happened is once it flipped over on its back, yeah. I did what was commonly referred to as a split S. And then the plane, the nose dropped down and went straight towards the ground and then came and I went straight back up to level scary. flight. Well, it was because this is not an acrobatic airplane and I wasn't trained in acrobatics and I didn't want to do any acrobatics. So, <laughs> I mean, that's as it turned out, I didn't realize what I was doing at the time, but that is what I did. And I found out, so once I got the plane back and wings level, I was shaking. I was physically shaking. And I said, eh, enough for today. We're going to go home. We're going to land this plane and get on the ground and get drunk or do something. So I uh, got back, and the next time I had a chance to talk to Frank, I tried to tell him what happened. And he says, well, don't you remember that very important step in the power on stall? When you set your power, go into your bank, and start your pullback, you reduce your power setting. Well, I didn't reduce my power setting, and that's why I had to pull so hard, and I kept banking, and that's why it flipped on its back. My mistake almost killed myself. Now, were you by yourself? I was by myself, and I had about yourself? ten whopping hours. Jeez. Well, that's how that's how it's done. So anyway, the story of my first stall, or how I almost killed myself before I ever got started in this business. Well, I'm glad you're still here. So am I. <laughs> standing at the door greeting people and this lovely little lady she's been in her 70s comes on and she looked so pretty you know her hair was really done she had her lovely orchid print dress with the lace on the collar gloves on her hands and so I wanted to be really nice because I thought I bet this is one of her you know she doesn't fly very much this is probably one of her first flights and so I tell her you know, there aren't any window seats in, in non-smoking, but if you don't mind sin, uh, sitting in the smoking section, I think you could have a window seat. Well, I thought she was going to smile nicely at me, and what does she do? She draws all 4 feet 11 inches up, of her up as tall as she can be, gives me the haughtiest, most disdainful look. It says, young lady... I did not just spend $12 to have my hair done to sit next to the window. <laughs> you know, as a little nonplussed, it, it so took me aback. I really had no idea what she was talking about for about three seconds. So I just let her go on by. Poor thing. That wind was not going to bother that beautiful $12 blue tint. Hair. <laughs> what happened is it was his first time to go fly. So uh, he gets into the plane with the instructor. They start it up. They taxi out. They take off. They get about 400 feet above the ground. And the guy throws up, gets airsick, and bleh, all over. So they turn, come back around, and immediately land. And uh, anytime you got airsick, you had to go see the flight surgeon. And, again, for people just starting and, and, and all this... It's not a, an, an uncommon thing, okay? So, uh, he goes to the flight surgeon. Flight surgeon looks at him, makes sure he's not dying, and he goes, air sickness noted, and sends him back out to the uh, training for the next time. So, the next time we come in, uh, and, and during the meantime, all of this, uh, he's flown with the other students, and now it's this guy's turn to fly again. 
So they go out there, they get into the plane, they strap in, they start it up, they get out to the end of the runway, they push the power up to take off, he throws up again. So, so they don't take off, yeah, poor guy. So they don't take off, taxi back in, sends him off to the flight of surgeons. The flight surgeon looks at him and says, okay, you're well, flight sickness, air sickness noted, sends him back to uh, training. So now it's a couple days later after the last incident, and there are four students and the instructor sitting around, and the instructor turns to our friend and goes, okay, Bob, your turn to fly. Bob turns white and throws up right at the table. So before they're even on the plane. Before he, right, he said, let's go fly, and he threw up. Bob was gone two days later. He never made it through pilot training. It was something called MOA. That was the official uh, reason. Manifestation of apprehension. Manifestation of apprehension. That's what they call it. It's like stage fright. Yes, exactly. And Okay, so you were flying with one of our more famous flight attendants who's rather blonde. And where were you going? Uh, we were doing a 727 trip, so that tells you how long ago that was. And we were on a three-day rotation. It was pretty hard, pretty difficult rotation. We were leaving from Cincinnati going to Seattle. So, of course, on a 7-2, you have no movies, nothing. But we were still serving hot dinners at the same, at the time. There were, what, like 12 people in first class? At that, Yeah, there were 12 people in first class and 138 in coach. And at that time, we still had four flight attendants. But the whole trip, she kept on saying, oh, she goes, I'd like to work first class. She goes, do you mind if I work first class? And I said, well, I said, maybe I'll let you work it on one of the legs. So eventually I just finally said, okay, well, this is a long enough flight. I'll let her work first class. In those days, you had to do the nuts, and then you had to do the appetizer plate, and then you give them their entree, and then you had to do Sundays. So I worked in coach, and we had done cocktails, done the hot dinner with beverages, done coffee, picked up all the trays, and it was about two and a half hours into the flight, and I walked up front, and all the passengers seemed to be asleep with their faces like almost in the trays. And I said, what's going on here? And she says, well, she says, I'm serving them course by course. So apparently in two and a half hours she has only gotten as far as the salad course because she decided instead of putting the entree on the, on the tray with the salad, she was giving them their salad first. So I said, okay, well, have some fun. And I left her alone, figured she had things under control. She only had another two hours to finish up. And... Uh, when we, were, when we were leaving, when we were landing, close to landing, she still hadn't done the ice cream. So as passengers were planning, she had nice little uh, motion sickness bags ready with their Sundays and saying, here you go, hope you enjoy your Sunday, and passing them out to people. And some people took them, and some people didn't. So they were eating, they took their ice creams basically in the barf bag from yeah. the airplane to go, to go Sundays in barf bags. Yes, and, and as I as I heard the story, that wasn't that wasn't the first time that it happened to her. So I think this was I wouldn't say that it was something she did all the time, but I, I'm sure it had happened before. So. Flying in a military F-15s. We were out on a uh, training exercise one day, and there's two of us were fighting two F-4s. Not much of a contest, but nevertheless. Uh, so we were out there, and of course we had we were in a tactical split formation, and we did our radar sort. 
we had both targeted the targets that were on our respective sides out in the distance, okay? Well, at about 10 miles, they did, they did a, a, what's called a weave to try and break our radar lock and confuse what we were seeing. It didn't work. I stayed locked, and I could see as the target split, I was still locked on the guy who was now across to the other side. So as we're coming in, I, I shoot a simulated radar missile on the one I'm locked to, and I also pick up the other guy who's on my side visually. And with the F-15, they had the new technology of, uh, you know, heat-seeking missiles that could, you know, pick the target head-on. You didn't have to be behind to make it see it coming at you. So I'm thinking, I am setting up to be Joe Cool here, right? Top gun. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> gun topper, whatever. So I pick up this guy visually, and so it's a matter of pointing the airplane and centering it and looking at the symbology on the HUD and then releasing the missile to see if it sees the target. Okay, well, realized that we are both doing about 1.2 Mach, so our combined closure is about two and a half Mach, right? Well, I, I uncage the missile and it doesn't see it. And I cage it back up, try it again, it doesn't see it. In the meantime, we're closed. The rules of engagement, the ROE state, that a head-on missile attack, you'd break off at a mile and a half, I think it was at the time. So. I cage and uncage this missile a process of about three or four times before it finally sees it. And it finally sees it, and I'm going, Sierra Hotel, and I hose this thing off. So now i got two missiles on two different targets. This is like, at that time, the premier Top Gun scenario. Well, the only problem is, as soon as I hose this missile off, I look at the range counter, and it's coming through 4,000 feet. So does that mean you're way too close? Way, way too close. So all I had time to do was one of those oh sh and react and I remember rolling and I remember him rolling and he passes above me. You know, you're actually rolling. Yeah, well, we're, yeah to, to maneuver away. Right, that's not a simulator, that's actually rolling. Okay, we, rolling to about 90 degrees to pull away, know, not a full simple. roll, yeah. And I, I'll never forget at two and a half mock closure watching this F4 go, you know, like this, and remember seeing the rivets and the oh. grease marks on the bottom of this F4 go by. That's how close you are, that you can see the rivets. Yes, and, and the backseater's head going, whoop, like this. I'm <laughs> making, well, this is good. <laughs> so, you know, after panting for a few minutes, it's, okay, back in the fight, here we go, you yeah. So that's supersonic rivets. Another blonde moment was a long time ago on an international flight. I walked in the galley and was totally horrified when I saw the flight attendant trying to open the champagne bottle with the corkscrew and I thought if that takes off it's going to poke someone's eye out. We have these practice war games if that's what you want to call it and uh, he was involved in a very large exercise in which there were many other airplanes and attack a target into one of the restricted areas just east of Yuma, Arizona. And when you're going at low altitude, you have to remember, at low altitude, there's really no margin for error. At, at high speed and low altitude, all your senses are open. Every, you're aware of everything. You're concentrating intently on everything you ha you're doing. Plus, you have the added burden of making sure your switches are armed to make sure that your bombs come off when they're supposed to and uh, make sure you have the right target information in your computer and 
you're also thinking about your wingman. You have to get him, and he's relying on you to make sure that you get your airplane in the target area and in the right configuration so you can perform your target attack. So that day, uh, early morning, he was tacking uh, a little bit into the sun. And anybody who knows you know, flying airplanes when you're going into the sun, uh, it can obscure your vision tremendously. And once again, at low altitude and high speed, there's zero margin for error. So uh, Mike did his uh, separation maneuver, which separates the two aircraft so that they deconflict. So you you don't want the the airplanes to go into the target area at the same time. Otherwise, they can, what we call, frag each other, drop a bomb. The bomb goes off under your wingman and then takes him out. So you got to be careful of that. So we have to have at least 30 seconds. So, you know, they do a breakup maneuver and then so one airplane comes in on his own and the other plane follows 30 seconds later. So that's what he did. He was the lead coming in and we did, he did perform what we call a low angle delivery where he pops up maybe to 3,500 3, feet and then starts a long, a fairly long uh, 10 degree nose down run at the target and it, that day he was ordered to bomb a mock target which ended up being a what we call a connex box and it carries jet engines getting into the target he's in his delivery he's doing 500 knots and he's slightly into the sun also the, the, another thing that was distracting was he thought he was going against a freight car which is much larger than a uh, this connex box and so he thought he was further away from the target. Now, normally what we do is we have a computer that tells us when to drop. His was, uh, you know, but he got so distracted by the sun and, and the size of the target and several other factors that instead of, you know, he, when he dropped his weapon, he started, to, he started to pull out and he was actually a lot lower than what he intended on being, and he impacted the ground at 500 knots. He hit the desert floor, and, uh, you know, well, you know, if somebody hits the desert floor at 500 knots, uh, I would say there's a 99.9% probability of complete obliteration of the flesh and blood. Anyway, the airplane broke apart, went skidding in a massive mess of metal and sand, smoke, flame, debris. Mike ended up against a pile of cactus out of his seat and completely whole. Rescue helicopter came along and really picked up what they thought was going just going to be a carcass and uh, body transport mission. And when they landed in the area, Mike came in and ran and hopped up on the helicopter <laughs> like, uh, like he was just climbing into a, an airplane like he normally does. Completely, not completely unscathed. He hurt his back uh, and he had, of course, quite a few scratches, but no, no broken bones. Wow. And he went skipping across the desert floor at 500 knots. Oh my God. And that's a story of... You know, 
I guess it's not over until it's over. Yeah, and luck, I guess. And, and luck. Complete, unadulterated luck. <laughs> <laughs> and now for my blonde moment. I was traveling in Morocco with a friend. We were going from one city to the next in a train, in a first-class train compartment. I usually travel pretty budget-conscious, but Morocco is very inexpensive, and I believe the first-class train ticket costs $10, so I could definitely spring for that. So we were sharing this compartment with a French couple. The man was Indian, and his wife was French, and he was quite pompous, I would have to say. Seems like you run into the same characters on a trip, and this was the pompous man for this Morocco trip, and we had talked to him for quite a few hours and it was now getting close to our stop so the four of us oh god our bags my friend and I had very large bags we weren't that experienced travelers at the time we had sleeping bags with us because we were doing a camel trek in the Sahara Desert and I have some great stories about that for another episode but so we get all of our bags and we're getting to get off at our stop and the train stops I'm first everyone else is behind me And there is a Moroccan woman standing in the doorway of the train. And this pompous French man starts yelling at me, get off the train, get off the train, it's our stop, we have to get off the train. And I I thought, well, what do you want me to do? There's there's somebody in front of me. And um, the Frenchman goes, push her out of the way, push her out of the way. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to push a woman out of the way. And so the train slowly starts to pull away from the station and we haven't gotten up and it's our stop and the next city we believe is Casablanca which is like eight hours away so the Frenchman is yelling at me the French pompous Indian man is yelling at me get off the train get off the train get off the train and it's moving and I thought well People jump off moving trains all the time in movies. Nothing really happens. You know, they sort of roll and they're just fine. So I I don't know. I think it's because he was yelling at me. You know, he was rushing me. And I thought, okay. So I I jumped off the moving train and went splat. I didn't, it was not like in the movies. I did not roll. I just hurt myself on the cement on the train station. I My legs were bloody, my camera was broken, my stuff was everywhere, and my friend now is looking at me with this stunned look on her face, and she doesn't get off. <laughs> she saw me go splat and hurt myself, so she stays on the train, and now I'm looking in horror as the train's leaving. Here I am, I don't speak the language, I'm in an uh, Arab country by myself, and my friend and the train are taking off down the track. And I was thinking, well, it's going to stop, right? It's going to stop. Someone's going to pull like a little cable or something. They're going to stop. They're going to get off. No, train kept going. And I was thinking, holy crap. <laughs> so at this point, two Moroccan men come out and they're looking at me like, why'd you jump off the train? Uh, we, we don't speak the same language, though they speak French or I think, well, at least I'll start bandaging myself up. I'm all bloody and I get to a bench and I start bandaging myself. And these two men are still just standing there looking at me quizzically. And I started to try to explain. I'm like, uh, me here, friend, Casablanca, me here, friend, gone, train. I was getting nowhere and I couldn't figure out what to do. It's like, okay, do I go to a hotel? How am I going to find my friend? I, I don't know when she's going to get to Casablanca. Should I try to go to Casablanca? Is she going to try to come back? How do I let her know where I am? You know, of course, I don't have any cell phones or anything like that. So 
I think, well, I guess I'll try to write a note and somehow leave it at this train station as to where I've gone. I, I didn't know what else to do. And luckily, it took me a while. Um, I couldn't convey my message to the people at the train station. And at that point, my friend and the pompous Frenchman come running out because there was another train stop in that city. None of us knew that. So they left the bags with the wife, came running back. They come running out. I go and hug my friend and everything was fine. But... It was definitely a blonde moment, and if you're ever on a moving train, I would have to say, don't jump. Well, that's about it for this episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. Hope you'll join me again next time so we can travel the world together. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.